I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a podcast on everything from employment to aircraft carriers. We are a bunch of policy nuts based in Namma, Bengaluru, and we like bringing fresh perspectives to Indian affairs and Indian perspectives to global affairs. I'm Manoj, a journalist, and I'm Shambhavi, a cell biologist. The Takshashila Institution offers 12-week online courses in public policy, technology policy, and defense and foreign affairs. The courses are ideal for both full-time students and working professionals. Admissions for the September 2019 batch are now open. Visit our website takshashila.org.in for more details. Hello and welcome to All Things Policy. On Fridays, we sometimes like to step back and take a wider view of things. Uh, and when we have Anirudh with us, uh, we like to go medieval. Some of our listeners might recall the episode that we did on a medieval trade war involving the Choras and uh, China. Today, we're going to talk about the Deccan and specifically the Western Chalukyas and the Choras. And uh, we're going to use this to address something that has puzzled me for a while, which is what makes some polities resilient and others brittle? Why do some polities endure and others fall apart? And I hope to explore this issue uh, in our conversation today. Anirudh, uh, we are talking today primarily about the Western Chalukyas, but I want, want to first get you started on, tell us about the Western Chalukyas and what came before them. So the Chalukyas are a very interesting dynasty. They're contemporaries of the Choras who are uh, understandably a lot more famous. Uh, they don't do anything as spectacular as going and invading Southeast Asia. But uh, I think they're very relevant to the discussion we're having today because they tell us a lot about how medieval Indian polities worked and more, most importantly, how successful medieval polities worked. So the Chalukyas, basically, uh, there's, there's two major dynasties that claim the title of Chalukyas. Uh, the Chalukyas of Badami and the Chalukyas of Kalyana. And the ones that we're going to be talking about are the Chalukyas of Kalyana. These guys are basically successors of a dynasty called the Rashtrakutas. Now, anybody who's visited the temple at Elora would be familiar with the Rashtrakutas already. And uh, so what happens in the year 972 is that um, an army from Malwa invades uh, the Deccan and sacks the Rashtrakuta capital of Maniketa. Uh, so they just sack it. They don't really burn it down. All they do is sack it. But almost immediately, within a year, the entire Rashtrakuta empire collapses. And what rises in the anarchy is the, is, is, are the Chalukyas, the, the Chalukyas of Kalyana. Now, um, it's, it's very interesting to think about what led to the failure of the Rashtrakutas versus the success of the Chalukyas. Because the Chalukyas, because they're living in a much more anarchic environment, they're not a superpower like the Rashtrakutas are. They're constantly being invaded by Malwa, they're constantly being invaded by the Choras. And even though their capital cities actually burned, uh, in fact, a lot, a, a large number of Deccan cities are burned under the Chalukyas' watch, these guys actually managed to stick around which is quite surprising and quite counterintuitive, especially if you compare them to the Rashtrakutas. So it just takes a simple Malwa invasion to knock out the Rashtrakutas. Uh, but the Western Chalukyas are also constantly at war, and they're at war both from the north and the south. What is it that made them survive? These aren't. This is not a particularly militarily powerful kingdom. Mm-hmm. So what is it in their polity that helped them endure? So if you look at the, 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 the primary source that we have for medieval um, polities is obviously inscriptional sources. 
Um, and I read this really interesting paper by a philologist called Whitney Cox. A uh, very interesting guy, has a very complex understanding of uh, the medieval period, uh, even though he tends to generalize a bit, but I'm going off on tangent here. So um, Cox's basic argument is that if you look at the earliest Chalukya inscriptions, uh, when everything's anarchic and they're, uh, they are just one among many, many claimants to the imperial title of the Deccan, it's a very, the, the way the polity works is very, very ad hoc. You will basically have a general being appointed to oversee a particular province and this general would have had uh, a retinue with him and the retinue will undertake duties like, for example, composing inscriptions, carving them onto a rock or a copper plate and displaying them, reading them out, whatever. And when the general was appointed to move somewhere else, he takes his entire retinue with him, thus leaving like local actors to fill in the vacuum. But quite interestingly, over the course of the next few decades, which is when the Deccan actually starts to really, really feel the heat of repeated invasions from both north and south, something begins to change. You no longer have a general going somewhere and his retinue being responsible for administration and so on. Instead, um, you have local administrators who are independent of these generals, who are instead of, instead of being commanded to do something by a general, would rather receive authorization, using air quotes here, authorization from whoever was appointed to oversee them. So these are authorizations instead of commands. Exactly. Uh, and I think that's hugely, hugely significant. And Cox's argument is basically that uh, what's happening here is that you have a new class of local elites, uh, scribes, administrators, poets, who have been set up by the Kalyana Chalukya court. And those guys are permanently stationed in their in their provinces. They don't move around. They're not attached to generals. They have their own independent ties to the court. And generals also have their own independent ties to the court. And every now and then, generals are appointed to oversee these nice cushy provinces and so on and so forth. And um, there's basically like a system of, almost like a system of checks and balances, a tension inherent in the way that these two power centers operate. Um, and it might seem quite counterintuitive. You would assume that, look, if you have loyal generals responsible to a single central figure sitting in a court somewhere, and these guys have their own retinues, then you'd have a highly centralized and thus a highly resilient polity that's able to respond to any any sort of invasion. But that's not what you actually see at all. What the Kalyana Chalukya court does is that they actually create more power centers. But because all these power centers are, have independent ties to the court, they keep each other in check and they're actually able to be more resilient to invasions than they otherwise would. Yeah, so what they're actually doing is creating these uh, parallel power centers which limit each other's power and are also limited in their power by the center. Exactly. And this would sound almost modern, right? It sounds like uh, what we now talk about, independent arms or autonomous arms of government. You have a judiciary, an executive, a legislature. But uh, who is at the center of all this? So the most famous Chalukya king is this chap called Vikramaditya VI. Because Vikramaditya is a very is a fairly typical sort of Indian king. He's a chap who builds a lot of temples, and he's got these poets who come to his court and so on. And that's more or less what everybody assumes with uh, assumes is makes up a medieval king, right? But that's not really how I see it at all. I think that the credit for this process of formalization of institutionalization uh, should instead go to Vikramaditya's father. Uh, the Chalukya Emperor Someshwara. You, you got to think about the kind of life he must have led, right? So, one of the very first things you'd have seen in his career is his capital being his Manyaketa, which used to be the Rashtrakuta capital and later became the Chalukya capital, being burned by the Cholas. A few years after that, the Cholas actually 
go and like raid deep in north india they bring water back from the ganga the very next year these guys go and invade southeast asia and about a decade after that they invade the deccan once again and actually burn his new capital which is kalyana and the guy has to rebuild from that so he's he's clearly not he's had a he had he's had a really really difficult life a really really difficult career he lives till about i think 1066 or something and uh, he dies by drowning himself in the waters of tungabhadra river cat i don't think that enough people have really heard about him but i think someshwara deserves a lot of credit for this and it's quite a striking contrast if you think about it like what i've described is clearly quite a problematic and turbulent few decades for the deccan if you look at the way the rashtrakutas were going out administering you'd basically have a central king of kings and 16 massive kingdoms across the deccan all of whom were run by their own vassal families and these guys didn't i mean though they were tied to the rashtrakutas through marriage and so on they weren't necessarily that invested in the continuance of the rashtrakutas themselves so the second that the rashtrakuta capital is sacked in 972 the second everybody realizes that these guys are actually weak they all go their own ways but the way that the chalukyas go about it is very different so they they actually have not just one royal center and kalyana they have a number of cities called rajadhanis um, in various provinces and they're constantly appointing members of the family or relations through marriage to oversee these and there's also a number of other power centers right because this medieval india we're talking about it's not just about nobles it's also about town assemblies it's also about uh, the so called mahajanas which are basically la- major landowners in villages patana swamis who are basically leaders of merchant guilds who are responsible for overseeing the taxes of a particular region and all that and all these individuals are participating in a extremely complex and tangled web of interaction with someshwara at the center it's from someshwara that all that all of them derive their authority so even though in practice they are raising their own taxes they are building their own temples they always say that we get it from someshwara because he's managed to convince them and this is this is a political thing he's done this through politics not just through force he's convinced them that politically the best way for all of them to operate is through claiming to derive their authority from the chalukya court and the chalukya court itself which has its own internal factions and so on is also arrayed around someshwara if you think about if you think about that i mean not just geopolitically but also politically the guy's life must have been absolutely crazy just imagine having all those thousands of people highly ambitious all of them wanting social status all of them wanting material possessions and you are the person who's responsible for giving all that to them yeah this man sounds like one of the greatest political geniuses of india and he's doing this uh, he's creating these new power structures in a time of anarchy you also sense that there is a very complex and carefully calibrated patronage network he's keeping his extended family happy but he's also keeping a wide variety of other actors uh, engaged in the process and dependent on him and these actors are not just necessarily generals or nobel nobles or landowners they're also say heads of trading guilds so it's from a wide variety of social backgrounds as well so uh, that sounds like the makings of a resilient polity but uh, tell us this is also the time when the choras were at the height of their powers what was their social and political structure like so there's the interesting parallels and contrasts between how the deccan and 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 tamilakam operate in this period so the most obvious thing that i can think of obviously is the fact that tamilakam is a lot more fertile uh, its population is a lot larger so what do you see in th- throughout the early medieval period so from roughly the 8th century onwards for about 300 years 
it's the Deccan that really dominates. They're constantly invading Tamilakam, and you know, there's so then there's a number of smaller Tamil kings. There's a number of, uh, and all these kings are like creating agraharams, you know, Brahmin settlements. They're also trying to invite trading guilds and so on and so forth. And of course, there's a whole class of local chiefs, the Velir, who do their own thing. You know, they're all lords of these tiny little uh, settlements and so on and so forth, who are all military aristocrats. And it's very interesting to see that the Rashtrakuta collapse is also tied into the rise of the Cholas as well as the rise of the Charukyas. It happens in, I think, 950 or so, is that the Rashtrakuta Emperor Krishna III invades Tamalakam and uh, it's as far as I know the most successful ever Deccan invasion of Tamalakam until like Vijayanagara or something and what Krishna does is he basically he kills the Chola crown prince in battle which kind of changes the line of succession and eventually leads to the accession of Rajaraja Chola and Rajaraja is also a political genius he recognizes that okay look Tamalakam's got all these different power centers let me reorganize its polity in a new system of honors that is centered around me. And while Someshwara is undoubtedly a political genius, I would say that Rajaraja puts even him to shame. Because while somebody in the Deccan, for example, say, so we have we have approval from Someshwara, we have approval when in this, then that year of Someshwara's reign, we built this. You will see officials in the Chora court who describe themselves as Rajaraja Chora's this, Rajaraja Chora's that. Their actual names don't survive. All that we know them through is their official title, which is always something, something Chola. And if you think about it, uh, the Coromandel Coast is essentially because it is derived from the term Chola Mandalam. This entire coast was essentially renamed, remade in the Chola image. The entirety of Tamarakam was split into massive mandalams or circles. Uh, which were named after Rajaraja's title. So you'd have a, a Mummuri Chola Mandalam, you'd have a, a Jayangonda Chola Mandalam. And these are all, what were at one point, independent kingdoms. For example, the Pallava Kingdom, Tondai Mandalam, was renamed as Jayangonda Chola Mandalam, which is very, very interesting. You don't see anything to that extent changing in the Deccan. But it's interesting to think about whether Someshwara was actually consciously learning from the success of the Cholas and implementing that in the Deccan. And of course, adapting it to its own particular context, right? Because he knows that, okay, so over the centuries, there are these very, very powerful military, military aristocratic families that have, that have risen up. And I have to integrate them in a fundamentally different way. And um, I mentioned, I think, at the beginning of our, of our conversation today that um, he wasn't the first Charukya. There was another dynasty of Charukyas that came before. And these guys actually, it's, it's very interesting because they have a imperial title. Of course, they call themselves the usual Maharaja Dhiraja, the great king of kings. But they also call themselves Shri Prithvi Vallabha, uh, which means the beloved of Lakshmi and of earth essentially a title of Vishnu. And you see the, not not just the early Chalukyas, but also the Rashtrakutas overthrow them using that title. And then the later Chalukyas of which Someshwara has a part using that title. So Someshwara goes about it a different way. He doesn't use his personal charisma to create this institution, but rather the charisma of the office of Sri Prithivi Vallabha, the emperor of the Deccan. So there is a pre-existing office which offers political legitimacy and authority, mm-hmm. which he appropriates to his own purposes. Exactly. Yeah, and you know, just for our viewers' uh, benefit, Chola Mandalam survives today in the word Koromandal. Yeah. Uh, so both of these seem like masterclasses in creating political legitimacy and authority, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm sure um, quite a lot of our listeners would have been to Tanjavur and they would have seen the Rajarajeshwar or Brihadishwara temple. 
I mean, just think of the effect that the Bhredishwar Temple has on us now. We are people who are used to seeing skyscrapers. We are, we are, our eyes are pretty accustomed to seeing buildings that are, I don't know, 20, 30 stories tall. Imagine somebody in the 11th century going to Tanjavur in a completely flat, like, Kaveri River Delta. And out of nowhere, you see this bloody skyscraper. It, it, I mean, even today, looking at it, it looks like a bloody mountain has just been plopped down in the middle of Tamilakam out of nowhere. And Rajaraja, like, really, really went out of his way to make the Rajarajeshwara temple a symbol of his political power. Like, the entire plinth of the temple is covered with inscriptions from himself, from his sister, from his daughters, from his sons, from all his army regiments. And all of them are like, oh, Raja Raja, he, he, this guy is the greatest man. And uh, quite interestingly, so his great rival is Someshwara's father. And he defeats him at one point, crafts golden flowers out of the loot that he seizes from him and worships the Shivalingam in that temple with those flowers. And there's inscriptions attesting to that in the temple. And this whole like public displays of royal authority, right? So it's, it's a very complex polity that's articulated not just through politics but also through religion through through rituals the fact that these kings were doing it and that they were doing it in a way that was tailored to india's unique sort of cultural and social context uh, i think really emphasized the fact that political resilience and politics is not something that's necessarily unique to europe Indians had their own distinct approach and there's a lot of value to studying that as well. Just listening to the description of uh, the Brihadeshwara temple, you are invoking religion, you're invoking the memory of military victory, you are involving your extended family and your military aristocracy. So that just sounds, just that is enough evidence that this is a broad-based polity with Rajaraja Chora at the center. And it's... um, so the Cholas are quite a quite an interesting case study. So Rajaraja's grandson, Rajadhiraja, is also Someshwara's rival. And Rajadhiraja is, how do I put this? He's a bit of a nut. He's constantly invading everybody that he can get his hands on. Yeah. And he has a, he has an a special he has a special how do I put this? Grief, a special bone to pick with Someshwara. So he's the guy who actually burns Kalyana. He crowns himself in its ashes as Vijaya Rajendra. And uh, so he actually goes back to the Deccan in 1054 when he's killed by the Chalukyas. He's beheaded. Uh, which obviously doesn't really do anything to help make the Cholas and Chalukyas any more peaceful. So violence actually escalates over the next few decades until roughly 1070. And... Uh, so the thing is, if you, if you if you if you just look at the southern peninsula of the subcontinent, right, you will see that the Chalukyas are basically dominating the west coast, and you see the Choras dominate the southern part of the east coast. Now, neighboring both of these regions is Andhra, specifically Vengi, you know, the land between the two rivers, between the Krishna and the Godavari. Now, if you're a polity that controls the west coast of India, it makes sense for you to have a presence on the east coast as well because then you have ports on both sides. And considering we've spoken about this in an earlier episode, a medieval trade war, we talked about how global trade was rising at this time, right? So it makes geopolitical sense for the Kalyana Chalukyas to try and seize Vengi. But also, if you're a Chola king, if you were to seize the east coast of Andhra, then your trade, you basically monopolize the entirety of East Coast trade. So there's a geopolitical incentive for you to do that as well. So what you see during the reign of both Someshwara and Raja Dhiraja and their successors is that these guys are squabbling over trying to control Vengi. And Vengi has its own Chalukya line. 
which is also descended from those very earliest chalukyas and generally speaking the choras are better because like just geopolitically it works better for them to keep just they all they have to do is head north and they can invade vengi right so they intermarry with these chalukyas but because of rajadi raja's constant warfare with the deccan rajaraja's line of cholas actually dies out and the one who rises to fill that vacuum is actually one of those chalukyas of vengi and he rises to the throne as kulotunga chola which is which is quite an interesting title because kulotunga i think means the pinnacle of his race but the guy is technically a chalukya pretending to be a chola and the way that kulotunga goes about the chola polity is actually it seems like he's learning from someshwara because he is not obsessed with the whole personal charisma aspect of chola power because he understands that for a king to maintain a party purely through the force of his personal charisma he has to be constantly and consistently militarily successful and that wasn't an option for the cholas towards the ending of the 11th century because they were devastated by nearly a century of constant war in sri lanka in the deccan in vengi and in southeast asia so what kulotunga does there's a surprising parallel with someshwara he accepts the fact that okay look there's all these city corporations that have taken over you know let me just accept them there's all these powerful merchant guilds i'll accept them there's all these powerful military aristocrats who have their own power bases i'll accept them and he lays the foundation for a much more stable chola party it's qualitatively quite different from what's come before and that last till almost the 13th century until it's overthrown by the pandyas yeah i think one of the most underrated kind of rulers are those that manage retrenchment well and keep the polity enduring Absolutely. and i think that's exactly what he did he eschewed further military adventures and adjusted to the political realities around him so it's it's, it's so interesting to think about just how just how interesting a lot of these indian royal figures are there's a tendency today to just see them as oh great king conquered that king built this temple performed a sacrifice but they're actually much much more complex figures than that uh, and as you said it's it's the guys who aren't that militarily brilliant that are really the most interesting case studies because by creating these res- resilient polities these resilient political social and, and economic structures they are the guys who actually make india what it is today Well that's been a fascinating discussion and I ended up learning more than I thought I would about So did I actually <laughs> <laughs> but all right and uh, uh, let us know if you have any thoughts in the comment section or on Twitter thank you for joining us Anirudh and thank you for joining us on all things policy We'd love to hear what you think about this chat check us out at our Twitter handle at @takshashila inst on our core space all things policy For the latest analysis and research on technology, strategy and economic affairs, visit our website at takshashila.org.in and tune in for our next episode.